the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why and how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for lending me those eyeballs. And if you're watching this on the video side, again, love your eyes, love your ears, keep tuned in. Today, I got somebody who reached out to me in a very unusual way, which I'll tell you about. But I said, you know what? I'm going to have this guy on the Sales Influence Podcast. Please help me welcome my man, Niraj Kapoor. Did I get it right? Victor, you got a perfectly greetings from Ireland. It's so great to see you. I did tell you that I've always wanted to go to Ireland. Did I mention that to you? Nope. Not at all. Did you? I, I got to tell you this. First of all, Niraj, I, I've always loved Ireland. I don't know why. I've always loved the old movies from, you know, the uh, Irish movies, the background. Like, I get teary-eyed when I hear Tura Lura Lura. Right? <laughs> when I hear Bayan Bonnie Braze, I actually get emotional, man. This is a Puerto Rican kid who gets emotional over those two songs, man. So congratulations, man. I would love to visit there one day. Maybe we'll see each other one day in Ireland. If you ever come to Ireland where I live, I will give you a tour, no questions asked. And if you go to the south of Ireland, I will simply recommend good places to go. They mainly involve alcohol and walks in greenery. Okay, sounds tempting so far. I like the way that you say, you don't say tour, you say tour. So I... So, Naraz, I'm going to give these folks a background of how we kind of met socially or virtually. So you must have listened to one of my podcasts where I talked about how I love samurai movies. And do you remember which podcast that was? Because I even forgot. It was, I think it was one just before you were talking to Luigi. I heard you mention about samurai and I thought, ah, I've done so much to try and get Victor's attention. Nothing has worked. So I'm going to now look up the Samurai. So I Googled Samurai and business. Five articles came up. I read all of them, and I sent you the most interesting one to get your attention. Because by saying your past podcast guests, like Daniel Disney, great friend of mine, I said, you know, congratulations. You've had Daniel's a good friend of mine. Nothing. And you had Will Barron on your show. I did a podcast with Will Barron. I sent the link saying, listen to what I've done here. It's going to give your listeners so much value. Nothing. Like, oh, come on. And then, and then I third time, this, to anybody listening, persistence is so important, but creative persistence is even more important. I read this fantastic book behind me, Virtual Selling by Jeb Blunt. He says one of the best things to do is record a personalized video and send it to somebody to get their attention. I sent a 60-second video. It took me about five attempts to get it right. Um, to tell you how much I loved your work and admired you and respected you. Nothing. And then fourth... I promoted your podcast on LinkedIn, tagged you in, saying, you got to listen to this podcast. And then you said, thanks. <laughs> I thought, okay, I bought from nothing to a thanks. That's good. So it was fifth time lucky. I heard you mention your love of Samurai. And honestly, I expected nothing. Because <laughs> I've already used my best ideas. I expected nothing. It was just me trying to be a person of value to you. I didn't even mention the podcast. I just said, I just thought you'd really appreciate this, Victor. Yeah, so so yeah, th- it was funny because I didn't realize was it that many times, four or five times you tried to cross the date. People want to be on the sales influence podcast. Like every day I get at least maybe two or three requests to be on this podcast, which is you know, it's a very it's a compliment, right? But it's like I get overwhelmed and people send me, hey, look at this, listen to this, and I go, I can't, I can't listen to all this stuff. It's impossible, right? And so when I saw the article, I said, Business samurai, I go, What? I said, What's that? And I clicked it. I was reading the article. I was like, and I finished reading the article. And we're going to talk about this article as our framework for this thing. I, I think we're going to title this uh, conversation Sales Samurai. We're going to, that's what I think I'm going to go with. No idea. Mirage and Victor talk about being a sales samurai. 
And so I read the article by Luis Romero that you sent, and I was like, oh, my God. You know, and first of all, I'm a Miyamoto Musashi, like, fanatic, right? And so I was like, what? And then I read this, and I was like, I never tied those two together, uh, the five rings. So I was like, man, that was, like, extremely thoughtful. Now, there is a lesson in there, right? Oh, absolutely. Listen, you've got to give so much value to people and really help them as much as you can. A lot of people don't think about that in sales. All they do is send their product across reach as many people as possible because so many people sadly have been badly trained and they're taught to speak to as many people as possible. I disagree with that. I run my own sales coaching and LinkedIn training business. I do not want to speak to as many people as possible. All I care about is having quality conversations with a few people. <laughs> That's how my business runs. as a way more successful business model than just saying spray or reach as many people as you can. Yeah. And, and I think you're going to be using this example. I got a feeling you're going to be using this example in your training in the future. Here's how I finally got to Victor Antonio. Because it wasn't like I got that personal. I go, well, nobody's ever sent me something on Samurais. I go, wow, he actually listened to the podcast and remembered that I like Samurai movies. And I read it. I was like, okay. I, any guy who puts this much thought into communicating with me, I said, I'm going to have to. And I got back to you, I think, right away. Well, as fast as I read the article, I was like, great article. I said, okay, let's do a podcast together. So there's a lot. And I've already told the story on the Sales Dojo podcast with Leon and Chris, and they were laughing their heads off. Go, oh my God, Victor's just been in our show like three hours ago. So it was so funny. Everything's been Victor Antonio in the last week. Everything, you know? That's fantastic. <laughs> By the way, the guys over at the Sales Dojo, those, those two, it was a great interview. They were very cool. So check out the Sales Dojo, man. Uh, I don't know when the interview will come up, but they were such good guys. You know, uh, Chris and Leon were such good guys. So I'm glad you got on their podcast. But anyway, Let's jump into this article. And I think, you know, I don't think, I know as I was reading the article, I was like, God, this would really be, it's titled Business Samurai. But I said, let's tie it into the wholesale samurai. So because it was your article, man, I'm going to let mm -hmm. you lead the conversation, how you want to jump into this article. Okay. Well, before they start the article, I want to give a bio on Mayamoto Mushishimi because it's so important to people today. In 17th century Japan, he was undefeated after 60 duels. He was also a poet an artist, and a philosopher. And this goes to show people everywhere, look at how much you can get done if you don't look at social media every 10 minutes. <laughs> I just have to start the interview that way because people are always complaining of time, but the problem is they're distracted so easily. And in 17th century Japan, or in 17th century anywhere, people weren't looking at social media every 10 minutes. They were focused on doing the job properly. And that's why he achieved so much. So if you want to achieve anything in life, focus, 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 focus. Just put all your social media apps on hold. The world is not going to end because you haven't checked how many likes you have on Instagram. So I thought it was very important to mention that. I love what you just said is that sometimes we're so focused on social media that we're not working on what we should be working on to get better. It's like, you know, it's like when you sent those links to me, it wasn't that you meant it this way, but it, but it was like, a, hey, look at me. Look what I've done. I'm a worthy candidate for your sales influence podcast, right? And, and, I, and I think sometimes because I've done that and I've realized, let me pull back. And try to connect with people. That's why when you sent the article, that was totally different. And I think too often, not you, not me in general, it's always like, look at me, look at me. And we just, we, you know what I mean? We forget to be human and maybe create value. And I think, you know, when you look at uh, Musashi's uh, history here, like I didn't know until I read this article that he was a poet and a philosopher at the same time, which is where this book came from. So I think, I think it's very fascinating. So let's frame this conversation now, Niraj, going forward. So he came up with a book called The Five Rings. Take Correct. it from there and let's get into each ring individually and how it applies to you, the salesperson listening or watching this today. 
Perfect. So the first ring is earth. And what it says is a samurai must have great knowledge of swordsmanship, discipline, stand firmly and have good balance. So how does this relate to the world of sales? Well, in terms of understanding sales, sales is a skill which has to be learned every single day. Without exception, no excuses. I personally believe every sales office in the world should have that as a poster. <laughs> sales must be learned every single day without exception. People of our age, Victor, we love books. The younger generation are into podcasts and audible. That's absolutely fine. But you've got to be learning every single day. And then you have to be taking action. That is how you get good. Uh, most salespeople I see get a day's training a week if they're lucky. And then nobody trains them for 12 months later. That's not good enough. I look at my family, for example, they're Indian. So even though I've got an Irish accent, they're Indian, which means they're, they're all doctors. <laughs> so they, they spent nine years, nine years training to become doctors. Uh, one of my best friends is Lister. She spent five years. Architects spend, I think, at least five years. And yet salespeople spend one day. That's yeah. just not good enough. You have to be learning every single day and you have to be taking action. Uh, on this one, when I read Earth, and I, it, you, you, the words I plucked out was rigorous knowledge of swordsmanship. And mm -hmm. it, was, it was rigorous knowledge, not only of the sales process, but also rigorous knowledge of number two, your product or service that you offer. Number three, rigorous knowledge of the customer's market and their environment. If I can understand the customer's environment, my product and how to sell, that to me was the earthy part, like the, like the get dirty. I, I don't know why, but I went from earth to dirt real quick there. I was like, <laughs> get your hands dirty, understand the market. What do you think about that? Oh, completely. I don't see people spending enough time really understanding their customer's market or their customer's customers. That's a big blank for most people. And you've got to understand their world. You have to... Uh, enter the conversation in their mind, but you also have to understand their market. You know, before I call any client, I spend at least half an hour researching, not just their LinkedIn profile. I have a look at their website. I look at news stories. I look at blogs. I look at case studies. I kind of find out who their competitors are. What are their competitors doing? What are they saying? Is their website functional? Is it commercial? Do they have a funnel? I'm asking myself all these questions. So when I do speak to them, I don't say stupid things like, hi, How's your weekend? <laughs> you know? Or, or uh, who do you compete with? I mean, that's just amateur art. You've got to cut that out completely. And I love the fact that you mentioned, you know, look at their competitors, because I think by looking at their competitors, you can empathize with them more because that's the challenge they're facing every day. Right. You look at their competition. Now you understand them. And, and I love the fact that you, we all know that we have to do the research. I mean, this is not rocket science here, but I, but I think a lot of people get lazy. And, you know, what do you suggest to somebody or what do you do? You mentioned the list that you go through, but like, do you have like some type of method of like pulling this stuff together? Because that's a lot of content. So when you're when you're trying to get an understanding, do you have like a method or some type of, I don't know, recipe that you go by? So, look, I need to know this, this, this and this and this before I'm going to reach out. Um, what I say to myself is I must research this person and at least have something I can talk about. So I will always look at LinkedIn profile first. I won't say one thing I used to say is, oh, you know, this person through a mutual connection on LinkedIn because a lot of the time people don't know their mutual connection. So I don't say that if they've supported a particular charity, like a cancer charity or a Prince's Trust charity, then I will mention that because their charities have supported. And on my LinkedIn profile, you can see that uh, quite a few people, CEOs play in bands. 
I'm a drummer in a rock band. So I can talk about playing drums in a rock band. I always try and find something. If I can't find anything personal, then I talk business from, I read an article on your website about this, 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 or I saw you being interviewed on YouTube and you mentioned that. I, I really like what you said about this and I'll give a reason why. And then I stopped talking because you, you don't really get more than 30 to 40 seconds when you cold call somebody. No, right. You just said something important. I, you know, I don't want to skip over this because it's too important. Mm-hmm. You just said, then I give them a reason why, right? You just don't say, I like that. Then you, when you add that reason why or because, that really lets them know, I really read it. I really understood what you were trying to say. And here's why. You know, have you found that to be the case that when you start getting reasons why, as opposed to sending the template questions out or statements out, you get a different reaction? Oh, completely. If I use the words because or since or why, I get a different reaction from people, always. And also, I also twist that around, Victor. So I'm a business owner. I get sold to every day. Not as much as I should, which always surprises me how lazy people are picking up the phone. But when someone sells to me, I, after, I always give them 30 seconds because I know how difficult it is cold calling. I do. After 30 seconds, I stop them and say, do you mind if I ask, what do I do for a living? And mm-hmm. either it's completely blank or I can hear really fast typing on the keyboard. <laughs> They're Googling my name and they go, ah, uh, sales coach. You know, and I'm like, no, that, no. And, I, and then I say to them, do you mind if I ask, why would I do business with you if you haven't taken the time to research me? That's bad. That's, that's a good way of catching them. I, I love that. That's funny. Hey, I got to ask you a follow-up question uh, because you added something to me. I always I like what people add to my, my, my understanding. I always had because and why as a reason why, you know, for example, when I read something and I'm reaching out and I make a statement, there's a, here's because or why, here's why. And then, but you added the word since. Mm-hmm. Like, what, how would you use that? Like, give me an example of that. So I'm reaching out to you because, or I'm reaching out to you since I tried last time and I didn't hear back from you. My email may have ended up in your spam box or, or maybe you just didn't read it because you're so busy. So I wanted mm-hmm. to try again. You know, I always try and put myself in their world. And then when you didn't respond to me the first four times, I never once said, you know what? Mark Hunter responds to me. <laughs> you know, I never said that. I thought, yeah. you know what? You're a busy guy. You're busy with a podcast, busy running a business. Maybe you're speaking at a virtual event. There's probably so many things going on in your world right now. I try to understand rather than criticize because anybody can criticize it takes no effort or talent but it takes an effort to really understand somebody's world and that's why i was patient with you and that's why i kept persisting because i know how busy you are smart man smart man so you you understood so now let's go to ring number two the first one was earth which is really about knowledge and understanding practice discipline good balance second ring garage second ring is water so a samurai must be able to move his body and handle his sword uh, in a way, imposing his own rhythm in combat while disrupting that of his opponent. And I take that in business as meaning flexibility and looking at things from different points of view. So for me, a good example of flexibility is virtual selling. So whenever you go see a client, you've got to do the research, you wear a really nice suit, you have a shower, you get prepped up, you go see them. Yet when I do presentation training to salespeople at nine o'clock in the morning and they turn up at nine o'clock, I can tell they've just woken up two minutes earlier. They're unshaved. They look a wreck. Their hair is a mess. They're, mm-hmm. They haven't had their coffee yet. They just haven't done the preparation. And you've got to understand virtual selling is just as important. You have to do the same prep as if you're going to see a client face-to-face. 
when I when I read the water, the water ring is my favorite, by the way. Of all five rings, this is my favorite. Uh, because again, a, a samurai, this part about a samurai has to move his body and handle his sword in a fluid yet overwhelming fashion. I was like, in a fluid and overwhelming fashion. And this reminds me of the, you know, I tell salespeople, you gotta sell your way. You have your own movements, right? But I but I love that overwhelming fashion. In other words, let that come out a little bit when you sell. Like sell your way. Stop trying to sell like somebody else. Try, stop trying to be the Wolf of Wall Street or somebody else, <laughs> or Gary Vaynerchuk or somebody like that, because that's their movement, their style. And so that I took that away as uh, also that style. But also we know adaptability is important, especially with virtual selling today. How we have to sell remotely. So that that to me was my favorite one. Oh, that's fantastic. That's really good to know. Yeah, Wolf of Wall Street. As entertaining and as brilliant as a movie it is, it's caused so much damage to salespeople everywhere around the world because they use that as a template of what sales could be. <laughs> of course, it's not. It's the complete opposite. I'm a Gary Vaynerchuk. You know, I, I've had a lot of salespeople curse at me, not, not, not in a bad way, just to express themselves. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk can do that. You shouldn't be copying him. Give me your voice. Give me your personality. Don't sound like other people. And of course, that does come with experience and age. But it's very important to find your own voice, your own truth, and your own authenticity whenever you speak to clients. I think in this case also, one of the things we should add, layer on top of this, when it talks about fluidity, it should also be about learning. By that I mean is that, you know, we're in a market that everything's changing. You know, we have now, you know, platforms, you know, sales engagement platforms, you know, intelligent CRMs and all these, all this new technology, AI, machine learning coming at us, business intelligence, data we can use. And I see that, you know, I'm starting to see a fissure, a divide between those salespeople who want to stick to the old way of selling and then the new salespeople. And I think this pandemic has made this quite apparent now that those who used to be field salespeople are having a harder time adapting to this remote mm -hmm. selling sure. because they're not willing to embrace the technology. What's your take on that? Um, I completely agree. I, I see people using age as an excuse. So one thing I've been saying to everybody for three months now is my business up until last October did good. It wasn't amazing. It was good. But since October, it's been amazing because I've embraced video twice a week. Mm. Now, have a look at my face. I get so self-conscious in front of the camera. Mm. I got massive nose. I got huge ears. I look like Shrek for crying out loud. <laughs> Literally, an Indian Shrek. That's what I look like. I hate seeing myself on camera. But... If I don't do anything, my competitors will. My business is in trouble. So I just overcame my fear and did it anyway. You've just got to stop using age as an excuse. And you have to stop using fear as an excuse for not achieving what you want in life. By the way, if you're watching this on, uh, or if you're listening to this on audio and you're not seeing him visually, he is totally over-exaggerating. <laughs> so if you're watching that video and you're expecting to see a Shrek, you're not going to see a Shrek. You're not. So I, I, I think he's... I think my my friend here, Naraj, is just suffering some type of you know I don't know some 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 issues uh, with your own face. But you look fine, brother. You look great, man. Thank okay, you. thank you, Victor. By the way, out of curiosity, I think we should pause here. Like take almost like a like a mental intermission here. And so so your family is originally from India, but you live in Ireland. Yeah, my grandfather's cousin. So if you imagine uh, late 1940s, you had India was split into two countries: India and Pakistan. It's one of the biggest wars ever. A million people killed. Muslims have their own countries. And this caused a big war. Right. So there was a big problem with jobs. And my grandfather worked in railway lines. And he, there was just very little work, very little money, but very little 
hope for the future. And his cousin came to London. And London is the greatest city in the world. Now and has been for decades. But in the 50s and 60s, there were signs everywhere. No, no black people, no Irish people, no dogs. You know, and that went on for a long time. So it wasn't very warm and hospitable. So after that, no luck in London. My grandfather's cousin went to the Irish countryside, uh, the north coast of Ireland, where people are so friendly, really nice. They welcome into your homes. And he wrote to my grandfather saying, you got to come here. So he took his family, including my father, who was nine years old, on a boat. It took weeks going from India all the way around the tip of Africa, all the way up north. Everybody on board is being ill. And then after weeks, they arrived in Ireland, sorry, in Northern Ireland. And uh, my father and my grandfather were one of the first Indians in 1952 uh, to arrive in Northern Ireland. And people were kind of we just stare at them all the time because nobody had really seen people of color before. Um, but it's incredible. So my father, you know, he's like first generation immigrant. Whereas I'm quite lucky. I grew up here and I consider myself westernized. And at 18, I left uh, to become the first Indian Bon Jovi. Um, I failed horribly because I had no talent. I was a good piano player, a great drummer, decent songwriter, not a great singer. I was like one of those delusional people you see on reality shows who think they're brilliant and can't sing. And sadly, that was me. So I failed horribly. And the only job I could get after a year on welfare with no qualifications, struggling, the only job I could get with no qualifications was sales. And that's how I ended up in sales in London. And I lived in London for 25 years. I worked in London. It was an amazing experience. I traveled the world, loved it. But then sadly, I got divorced last year. And it caused unbelievable pain and heartache. And then I went into lockdown and spent four months by myself. And that, that really messed me up quite badly. My parents said, look, come home. All your work's online. You'll have fresh home-cooked food. You have a company here. And it's the smartest thing I did. I've come back home temporarily. It's been about five months now, but the best thing I could have done. Sorry, that's my life history in 90 seconds. Oh, I love it, man. <laughs> I, I love immigrant stories, man. I'm a sucker for immigrant stories, man, especially ones that are so, like, there's this dichotomy, right? There's an Indian who lives in Ireland. What what town in Ireland do you live in? I live in a town called Antrim. It's about 20 miles uh, north of Belfast. So Belfast is the capital of Northern Ireland. Dublin's right. the Belfast of the south of Ireland. And Antrim is about 20 miles. Small, working-class town. You know, what? you go to the bar wearing tracks of bottoms. You know, you get pregnant at 13. That, it's that kind of working class time, you know? Well, wait a minute. So so what's the name of the town again? It's called Antrim. A-N-T-R-I-M. And it's evolved a lot over the years, thankfully. And it's become a bit more culture, but it's still a working class town. In the evening, everything that's open is a bar or a takeaway. That's pretty much your option. So it's still a very working class in its roots. I, I get that because the uh, my family's originally from Puerto Rico, the island. And so back then, you know, when my mother and father were coming up, I mean, it was like, you know, it was like industrial revolution time. There wasn't a lot going on. They were working on the farms. People got married at 13, 14, 15 years old, uh, which seems like weird today. But I mean, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, that was something that was very common. And so I think that's interesting to have that background. And so your parents came. How, how was your upbringing there? I mean, when you were when you were coming up, you know, what was your perception of things as a child? Until the age of 11, life was beautiful. Uh, I was the greatest overperformer. I was a straight-A student, captain of the football team, head of the Cub Scout. Life was perfect um, because kids until that age are pretty cool, decent to be around. 
And when they become teenagers, unfortunately, many of them become assholes. There's no nice way to say that. They just do. And they hang around little cliques. And whenever you get bullied because of the color of your skin, sadly, mm. most kids will not stand up for you because they're scared. Uh, and in many cases, ignorant. And many people hadn't left the small town we grew up in. They've never traveled the world. There was no internet. Nobody knew anything. And mm. so I was a colored kid. So I got every abusive, offensive word you could imagine. It was really difficult. And when I told my father about it, he said, ah, just work it off. But you can't say that to a teenager. And so I got into a lot of fights. I got into a lot of trouble at school. Uh, everybody thought I was a badass. I, I wasn't. I just didn't like people being horrible to me because of my skin color. I couldn't understand why people had such hatred. It just made no sense to me. Even now as an adult, it makes no sense to me why people do that. But it really hurt. And I, I got into a lot of fights. I failed at all my exams because I was I, I was th I was thought of as being a bad child, <laughs> a troubled child, but I wasn't. I just didn't like being picked on and bullied. Um and I, I just hated school. I didn't like the teachers, I didn't respect them. So I left school with nothing. No mm. qualifications. And I thought, you know what? I love 80s rock music. I'm going to be a rock star. Prove all of you suckers wrong. And that was, I just, I recorded demo tapes with all the money I saved up stacking shelves in the supermarkets. I was so naive. I just recorded three songs, went to America, sorry, went to London, went to CBS, Epic, Virgin Records, Warner Brothers, you know, all the companies back then and give my demo tip. I just I, I had no fear. I just walked inside saying, I'm going to be the next Bon Jovi. I'm going to be the next rock star. And they took my tape and said, thank you. And I left. And I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> and then months later, thank you. You're not what we're looking for in mm. the post. And that was it. And I'm like, what do I do now? And I felt so ashamed. I couldn't go back home because <laughs> I had nothing to go back home for. So it was quite a shock to the system to have your dreams crushed so early in life. But you know what? It led me to sail. So I'm grateful those hard times happen because sometimes you need the really hard times until you have the good times. So, so draw the connection for me. This is a draw the connection for me. You come up as a kid, you're bullied, you're in a in, a, in an area where people are kind of like, you're strange. I get that. Trust me. Uh, and then you try to become a rock star. That doesn't work out. So throughout all that, when you get into sales, apparently you're not afraid because anybody who, who records a demo just decides to go to, you know, one of the big record companies and says, hey, check out my demo. Mm -hmm. I mean, it takes a lot of cojones, right? A lot of guts to do that. So how do you think, I mean, how did you get into sales? I mean, specifically, how did you get into sales? What was your first sales gig? I was on welfare in England, which is welfare is horrible no matter where you are. And one day there was a knock on the door and nobody knocks on your door when you're in welfare. Yeah. You never answer the door either. <laughs> and the person yeah. kept knocking and it was my father. Okay. And he came to my house. My father was kind of ashamed and embarrassed. He's a very respectable man. His son's unemployed in London. And he had a talk with me saying, look, you can't live like this. This is a, this is embarrassing for me. It's embarrassing for your mother. So come on, you've got to get work. When you get a job, life will make sense again. Yeah. I didn't quite see it that way. I just saw that I'd failed. I was angry. I was bitter. I blamed everybody except myself because I didn't understand at that young age, you're 100% responsible for your success in life. I didn't understand that. Um, and we looked for jobs and I was qualified for nothing. But back in those days, a British newspaper called the Evening Standard had jobs every Friday, like classified jobs. Our top salesperson earned £2,000 last week. No experience required. I'm like, £2,000? That's like 3000 American dollars. Yes, I'm going to be a salesperson. So it was done purely for financial reasons and because I needed no skills. And when I went for the interview, Victor, Within 10 minutes, they hired me and I thought, yes, I'm a natural born salesperson. And I started the job 
and they give me a script, like an A4 right. script. Okay. Goes, so pause yeah, what are to learn this? Yeah, pause before you go too far. <laughs> Why do you think you got the job in 10 minutes? I thought it was because I was brilliant, but I realized I had nothing to do with that. They were just hire 20 people, get them the phone, one will survive, get rid of the rest. But again, I didn't know that, you know? <laughs> you walked out and thinking, that's how good I am, right? But yeah. And so so now you're in sales. Yeah. And we'll get, by the way, for those listening, we'll get back to the five breaks the last week, but this is interesting. So now you're in sales for the first time. Walk me through the process. What did you discover right away? Because maybe there's some people who are just jumping into sales right now. And I guess I want them to hear your journey, your story in sales. Yeah, sure. So after the first job, I lasted, I think, four days. I then went looking for a job that would offer me training. And I found it very difficult. Luckily, I found a company called Centaur Publishing, who in the 1980s and 90s were a beast of a company. They had 50 magazines. They were, they were so respected in the business-to-business space. And their flagship title was Marketing Week. So I wanted to work there. And I'd applied, had no luck. So I, again, I just walked around in one day. Luckily, the receptionist was Irish. And she took pity. <laughs> It's your Irish swag here that's making me. You, you skip. What was it? The first job you got, the two thousand dollars a week. Talk to me about that one. What happened? There? Oh, I didn't get. Um, that was the job. I lasted four days in that job. I just left because they gave me a script. Uh, I read the script over the phone. Somebody mm-hmm. would give me an objection, and I didn't know what to say because in the script they gave you, there were no objections. You just have to read the script, and I'm like. There's, there's a boss going, say this, say this. You know? <laughs> and it was such a bad way to teach. You can't teach something like that. When someone goes into sales, Victor, you have to give them training. You have to do role plays. You have to support them. You don't just say, get on the phone. Here's a script. It was just so badly done, so disorganized. And in, a, in an environment of maybe 100 people, Probably five people were making £2,000 a week, but everybody else was broken earning nothing because there was no training involved. And it was a miserable, depressing place to be. And it was all men as well. <laughs> it was just all men. And I'm like, there has to be more to life than all of us stuck in offices like sardines, sweating wow. our asses off in the summer heat with no air conditioning in London. It just, I just felt there had to be more to life than this. So after four days, I left that job and I started looking for jobs I could get training in. And that's my apply to Centaur. And thank God I got that week's training because, you know, they, they didn't get back to me. I walked into the office saying, look, please hire me. Luckily, the receptionist was Irish. She introduced me to the HR manager who's coming back from her lunch. She met me, gave me the interview one hour long. I started the job on Monday and I got a week's worth of training. It was spin selling by Neil Rackham. It was Dipita. It was Aida. Pretty basic stuff, but enough to get me by for the first few years. And that was how I started selling small classified adverts in the back of a magazine for £10,000 a year. What's that? $15,000 a year. I mean, how bad was that? But it was the start of my career in sales. But it's interesting how, you know, when you go to the one that you only lasted four days, I mean, the highlight there is obviously you got to train your salespeople and have people 100% have, have the onboarding process. I think today we're appreciating onboarding more than we did, let's say, 20, 30 years ago. You know, we're, we're getting we, we're, we're starting to understand the cost of churn of, you know, employees leaving. So I'm glad I'm glad you finally got the training. I'm a fanatic of spin selling. I was one of my first sales book. I'm still I still love it. Uh, people say it's dated. I'm like, not nah, not really. Uh, it just needs a little adjustment. So I love Spin Selling uh, by Neil Rackham. So now you're training, now you're selling. So on that note, 
Let's go to the third rank. So we got earth, which is really about understanding the product, understanding the market, understanding business. Two, water. Be fluid. You know, as Bruce Lee says, flow like water. Be like water. Let's go to the third rank. Okay, the third one is fire. Uh, this is where the samurai must be vigorous, must be able to move quickly in any direction, strike his sword cleanly at any angle. So how does this relate to business? Well, you got to process information quickly. you got to act decisively to seize opportunities before your competitors do. And I, I, I kind of take this as lockdown. So all of a sudden in lockdown, March 2020, I couldn't see my clients face to face. All their staff were put on furlough or sadly, one or two of my clients lost their jobs. I'm like, oh God, what do I do here? So I did the old Brian Tracy thing of I got a pen and a piece of paper and wrote down 20 solutions. <laughs> it's a brilliant exercise to do because the first eight are easy. After number eight, it's really difficult. And I come up with, you know, launch a podcast run a masterclass, learn online, take up Zoom, uh, build my online course, finish my second book. And I achieved all of that. I achieved more last year than what I've achieved in the last three years out of pure fear and necessity. So it's amazing what you can do when your back's against the wall sometimes. But ultimately, it's adapting to a new environment and learning new skills and selling different ways. That's my understanding of it. You know, I've talked to so many people, like literally so many people, uh, when everybody, everything was locked down, March 2020, you know, I've talked to so many people. And it's really interesting that the majority of people said, you know what, I got to figure this out. And they just started doing things differently. As you said, they went through the, the 20 you know, bullet point exercise to try to figure out what do I need to do differently. And I think, again, there's a big divide. Some people just are waiting for everything to go back to normal. The smarter people are just figuring this out. When I read this one, fire being the third ring. Uh, the word it had fierceness is the key to creating opportunities and seizing time. That word fierceness, I, I think that's I, I love that one when it comes to wind, right? Because uh, or fire rather. When you look at fire, it's it's about striking with the sword, right? But striking aggressively. When you decide that you need to move in a certain direction, you don't do it hesitantly. Yeah. You you strike with fierceness, and that's what I got from that one. I certainly understand that when I started doing master classes, I didn't say. It would be nice if I did a masterclass. Let's just try one and see how it goes. No, I went all in. And the first masterclass is like anything. I was sweating so much. I was so nervous. And despite the fact I've got so much experience presenting face-to-face, -face, presenting to boards of directors, it's really much, it's much more difficult presenting to a tiny little hole on the yeah. screen. It's much more difficult. It's harder to pay attention. You can't spend as much time doing it. People get more restless. You pick up body language easier. I mean, it's, it's very different. And that's why I keep saying you've got to be training yourself. You've got to be reading books like virtual selling. You've got to be understanding how to present because so many people don't. They present to me or I see my clients presenting and it's like, oh, God, you're looking down on the camera. Don't do that. And I can see you're possibly wearing tracks of bottoms with your shirt. <laughs> don't do that. And don't put your bed in the background. At least try to have a decent background that says something yeah. about you. That's important. Yeah. I, I, the, the fierceness to me, the fire part is you got to do it with intentionality. Like you said, you got to be all in. And sometimes I think people aren't all in. They go, I think I'll, as you pointed out, I think I'll do this. Where other people go, no, no, here's what we're going to do. I have no idea if this is going to work out, but I'm doing this. We're all in. And I think sometimes we miss that. 
there's a lot of people who just don't do it with that type of intensity. Maybe maybe fire should be more like intensity. You know what I mean? Let, let's do it. Let's go all in. Let's commit, man. That's what I love about that third ring. So now take yeah. us to the fourth ring, man. Okay, the fourth ring. So we've got um, earth, we've got water, we've got fire. And the fourth ring is wind. So the samurai must be alert of his surroundings in order to use topography, weather, lights, and shadows to his advantage. So in terms of business, you must constantly be learning for your competitors, be at the forefront of innovation to stay ahead. Market trends, opportunities, and threats are only visible to those who stay alert. I love that. So for me, it's about standing out from the competition. Because look, the competition will take a lot of money from you. They'll say all kinds of bad things about you. But you've got to stand out. And when I started my own business, I wasn't standing out for my competition. I just couldn't understand why. And when I got a coach, she says, well, Neeraj, you have all this ability and skills, but it's not in your profile. <laughs> it's not in your messaging. I can't tell how you're different from your competition. So now everything I do is different from my competition. So my competition will share lazy motivational quotes four days a week, or they'll share entrepreneur.com articles. Me, I'm posting videos once a week. I'm posting documents once a week. I'm, I'm, I'm posting so much value, they're posting motivational quotes. I'm talking about the charity work I do, they're just liking posts. You know, I am liking and commenting and posts of people I want to do business with. They're not even doing that. So I'm always looking at my competition, being very aware of their behaviors and also showing a bit of respect because you have to respect the competition. You can't just say they're bad, but at the same time thinking, how do I create almost not blue ocean strategy, but how do I, how am I different to my competitors and how do I stand out? And now the last three months, I'm getting incoming inquiries. I'm getting business that my competition aren't getting. And as a result, my competition are now spending seven to eight hours a day on clubhouse, running their own events, desperately trying to find business because they can't find business elsewhere. So that, that, that was my understanding of it. Yeah, when I when I looked at wind, uh, I like the word topography. That kind of that kind of highlights <laughs> the right. The landscape has changed, and it's the ability to see that the landscape is changing. As I watch old samurai movies, I always know that it's almost like Sun Tzu Art of War. Even which side you stand on, high valley, low valley, you know, sun behind or sun in front of my eyes. There's always this positioning. You have to understand your environment. You mentioned virtual selling a couple of times. Uh, so there's two great books out there. There's the one by Jeb Blunt. Uh, my, my good friend, Jeb Blunt, Virtual Selling, which I think is a good, I like to call that more of a B2C book. And then there's the Virtual Selling by the Rain Group, which I think is an excellent book if you're an enterprise B2B complex sale. Those are two great books that really try to, I guess, help you understand this new topography because the wind has shifted everything. And now we need to understand that. And its ability to kind of maneuver within that is what you're highlighting. And then the biggest one is, what is my competition doing, and how can I outdo that competition? So I love that one. Now, the last one's going to be a tricky one, man. So I'll let you introduce the last rank, because it's a really tricky one. Thank you. So the last one is emptiness. So you must be able to apply these qualities depending on the situation. Building a market void is a driving force of every business. So what does that mean the business level? Well, you know, it, it's... Just as a samurai would lose a duel by forcing the wrong technique in any situation. So in other words, don't just sell for the sake of getting your commission. Don't sell with dishonesty for the sake of hitting your target. I see a lot of people do this. The worst sales calls I get 
are towards the end of the month, usually the last two days, where people are so desperate, Victor, they will say anything to get a deal. And it's like what my father always says, there's no such thing as 99% integrity. That's really key. What were your takeaways from that? When I, when I read The Emptiness, and by the way, I, I got to go back a little bit and just give credit. This is an article written by Luis or Louis E. Romero, Forbes magazine, titled Become a Business Samurai Musashi, with Musashi's Five Powerful Lessons. So I want to make sure he gets credit there, and I'll put a link in the, in the show notes as well. So his definition of emptiness was once a samurai has mastered the combat technique resulting from the first four elements, he must then let go of everything he knows by forsaking any preference for one technique over another. And I just, that stunned me. The whole article, that one was a stunner because <laughs> I, I come from a point of view is that once you absorb everything you need to absorb, then you almost have to let go of the technique. In other words, whatever comes your way, your body will tell you, your mind will tell you what you need to employ at that very moment. So the fact that he said, empty yourself, become empty, and then the techniques will choose themselves given whatever situation you're confronting. Uh, I thought that was pretty cool. You know, I, that was a great way to summarize the five rings. I mean, do you see it that way that you've got to kind of let go sometimes and let the thing happen, let the sale happen? I never thought about it that way until I read this article. <laughs> and that's why I love reading all the time, because you always pick up things you don't think about or you often learn things in a different way, or sometimes you just learn something that just slipped your mind. And that's why I always say to everybody, if you want to succeed, you've got to be learning every single day, without exception, because that's how you become better. But I think it's a very good point, you know, learning everything and letting go and letting it happen. And it's something I never thought about until I read that article last Let week. Me, you know? I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to put you on the spot. Give me an example you think. And I'm going to ask this question slowly so you'll be able to kind of come up with an answer because mm -hmm. it's a tough question to ask. I want you to think of a moment when you think about emptiness, where a moment where you just let go. You were in a sales process, you're in a sales situation, you're in a business situation, and you decide to let go. Do you have one? It's a tough one. A tough I'm going to improvise on one. So you just let go. So I have spoken to a client about working together. Um, and just before I mention the price, I recap their needs, which I always do. I'll give them a list of the solutions I offer. I mention the price. And then I just be quiet and I let go. And I just be quiet for 10 to 15 seconds. Most salespeople can't do that. <laughs> they have to keep talking. And so many talk themselves out of a deal and just letting go. And waiting to hear what the customer has to say is really important. Do you think that's a reasonable example or can you give a better one? I, I, I like what you said because I think, you know, when we're, when we're talking about the topic of emptiness, right? I think the pause is a perfect example of emptiness, right? It's just, shh. and a lot of people have a hard time with that. Just you, you say what you have to say and just shut up and let the customer fill the void. And, you know, when I, when I think about emptiness like that, I'm always thinking about, I did everything I could in that sales process that I knew I could do, and I did it to the best of my ability. I'm very satisfied with what I did, and then I let go. That's my definition of it. I let go. I gave okay. it my best, and I walk away from that situation going, that was my best. When I do a keynote, I always ask myself, was that my best? I go, that was my best. And it, what, I've, what, what I've learned is that it doesn't psych you out. For example, when I do a keynote, I know in my head, that if the audience doesn't react, I know what I'm delivering is good, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so I don't let an audience psych me out anymore. Just like I don't let customers psych me out. We all had that customer. We're talking to three or four people and there's one guy or gal with his hands, arms crossed and giving you the, the, the twisted face. Right? <laughs> yep, I've had that. <laughs> and I don't let that person mess with me anymore. I let, I let go of trying to actually trying to win the person over. I just deliver what I know I can deliver. That's I think to me, that's letting go. That's actually really good because when I started three years ago, after I set my own business, having done 25 years in sales, I remember my first, no, my one of my first few talks, a lady in the front row was looking at her phone and she was texting while I was talking. Mm-hmm. I said, excuse me, I'm talking here. Can you put that down, please? <laughs> I literally told her off. Because I was so upset with that. It's so rude. Now I don't do stuff like that. They choose to do it. Let them do it. I'm going to focus on the people who want to learn from me. And that's a very hard thing to do. You've really got to put your ego aside and, and not be upset by something like that. And that's a, that's a good example, Victor, of letting go. Yeah, I like that. I, I, for me, you know, there's two things to that. I think it's really interesting. Uh, there's something called the fundamental attribution error. And the fundamental attribution error is that you see a situation and then you think you see, understand it and you call it out, right? Or you get mm-hmm. mad. Like you called me, uh, you tried five times to contact me. By the fifth time, you could have said, he's such a jerk. I'm, I'm, that's it. You know, this guy just think he's too good. He doesn't want to talk to me. But you didn't do that. That's the fundamental attribution error was he's a jerk. He's never paying attention. What's the point? Right. Mm-hmm. You superimposed that your thought process on me. But you didn't do that. You avoided that. And you just said, no, let me keep trying. There's something else. And too often we psych ourselves out. Like that lady is a perfect example of fundamental attribution error. Could be hypothetically. Uh, that maybe what if she she was on the phone because her son, making this up, by the way, her son was in the hospital and she was waiting to get updates. Had nothing to do with you. It had everything to do with getting updates from her son, right? Now, imagine she, you had said that, hey, put that phone down. And then she explained that to you. You'd be like, oh, I'm such an idiot. You know what I mean? Because we all do that sometimes. We just kind of superimpose what we think. Uh, so that's why I said Hey, you mentioned something earlier. If I can go back to it real quick. You mentioned uh, that you had a coach. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it very quickly that you you talked to your coach. And so talk to me a little bit about, because you're a guy who is a coach. Yes. You know, and, and, and by the way, I, I'm into coaches. You know what I mean? If I need a coach, I'll go get a coach. So talk to me about a coach being coached by a coach and why would you need one? And just a little background. I I think it's always interesting to let people know that we're always open to other people, even helping us. Of course. Well, the last recession we had in 2010, I was a top performer. I was working for a big British newspaper called the Guardian newspaper group. I was running their events division and I was the top sales guy and I lost my job. Everybody else was losing their job way before me, but I kept my job until the end and I'd asked the MD for a pay rise. And one day he brought me into the office. I thought, yes, I'm going to get my pay rise. I'm going to get my dues. I'm the top performer. And he told me I was being replaced by a graduate. I'm like, what? Because they wanted to save $30,000 a year. I was so insulted and so offended. After six years, they would treat me that way. He shook my hand, said goodbye. That was it. No leaving party, nothing. I was so hurt. I went this very dangerous path of self-pity and self-destruction, which I hadn't had for a long time. And my my father, my, my wife at the time, my daughter then had an intervention saying, look, you're depressed. Um, for three months, I had no work. I couldn't get a job because I would go to interviews and I would say, I can't believe they treated me so bad. I was the top performer and I would get emotional in interviews. And, and nobody wants to hire someone who's that insane. And so I went 
to the bookshop uh, to, to look at some self-help books because I realized I was depressed. I want to get look at some books on depression. And I got there and it was with the greatest respect. It was full of middle-aged ladies and cardigans and sandals. So I rushed back downstairs to the magazine section to read my sports magazine. I love sports. I read my sports magazines. And on the way there, there was a magazine that caught my eye saying success magazine, how to improve your life. I thought, okay. And I read it. And it was so emotional. There was Tony Robbins. There was uh, John Maxwell. There was Jim Rowan. All these amazing people telling me things like the secret to living is giving. And the more you learn, the more you earn. I'm like, really? And everybody needs a mentor and coach. I had no idea. And within six weeks of reading this book, and I think I bought the seven habits of highly effective people. I bought a Tony Robbins book. And I think Think and Grow Rich. They were the three books that started me off. And I loved reading. I couldn't believe how much fun this was. I'm like, why? I'm learning so much. And I became better. And I got my first job at a FTSE 100 company, which I guess is the American equivalent of a Fortune 500. And after I got the job, I asked the guy who was really successful, my boss, how am I going to succeed in this job? And he goes, two things. First of all, I'm going to coach you. And second of all, you're going to coach your team. That is how you're going to have success. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, sure, why not? And the next five years of my career were the best five years of my life in terms of success, salary, earnings, winning the Chief Sales Officers Club. Coaching took me to another level of learning, of understanding myself better, of personal development, of doing charity work. And when you start doing charity work, the CEO and the board of directors started noticing me as well as my performance. They realized this, this guy's a good guy. He's making a difference. And all of a sudden, my career went to another level. So now I have my own business. I still get coached as well, one-on-one, -on -one, because my coach keeps me accountable. My coach often sees things in my business I don't see because I'm so closely attached to it. And my coach pushes me to a higher level. That's what you want. Every athlete has a coach. Every top entrepreneur has a coach. Why don't top salespeople have coaches? Well, they do. The problem is, is the rest of the salespeople who don't have coaches, which is why they all struggle so badly. And it's why they consistently miss their targets. When when you have this coach, I mean, give me an example, if you don't, if you don't mind sharing. Because I... Always good to kind of like share this type of stuff with people. Like, give me a moment when your coach kind of shifted your perspective that one degree, and that's all you needed to see things differently. Oh, perfect. Um, it was last year, and I was talking earlier about competition. And she goes, Naraj, I know what you do, but I don't see it in your LinkedIn profile. I can't see it in your website. As far as I'm concerned, you're just a sales coach, like everybody else. Mm -hmm. I'm like, ah, all these things you're telling me, why is this not in your LinkedIn profile? And by the way, why are you doing video for? Stop making excuses about your age and your bald head. Come on, just do this, okay? I have faith in you. You have more ability than you realize. And it makes me sick that I don't see your talent out there near us. Now, shit, the epic video for me. <laughs> she really yeah. laid into me. And I'm glad she did. And that's why I hired her. You don't hire a coach to be a friend and hold your hand. You hire a coach to give you the best advice possible. And my coach, you know, she doesn't mince her words. She's brilliant. She's very British, north of England, really working class, hardcore, you know. And that's the kind of person you want. She fights my corner and she tells me things that no, that someone like my mother, my mother would never say that to me. And that's why you need a good coach to help uh, take you to a different level. I love that. I, I, I think those are the best coaches. And I think sometimes, you know, it, we stop ourselves from doing things because we overthink the process. You know, in your case, using your your context is like, you know, I just don't look good on camera. I just 
you know, and you start coming up with, I don't look on camera. I don't know if I'll be able to communicate. And you start telling yourself that you give this, yourself this narrative. And it, it stops so many people from being successful. Uh, I, you know, people ask me all the time, I said, Victor, why, why is your podcast so like popular? Why do people know you? Because I put stuff out there. I hated my first videos. Told it just like you, man, hated my first videos. And so I just said, but it's the content. And it's content, but also caring. That you really care to help other people. And I love the fact that you keep talking about charities and your participation in charities. And out of curiosity, do you have a favorite charity? I don't have a favorite one, but the one that tests get the most attention is Movember. So Movember is a men's cancer charity where you grow a ridiculous mustache for charity. And some, one year, somebody in uh, LinkedIn said, I look like Saddam Hussein. This year, I look like a, a biker because it's a big, long Lemmy from Motorhead. Yeah. So that's actually a fun charity to do because everybody keeps commenting. And because we've been embracing videos since last October, throughout all November, my mustache got more and more ridiculous. Not, and people are commenting more on the mustache than my content, but it showed my character because it's not just sharing value to people. You want people to see your personality. A lot of people think business has to be so serious. And sometimes business can be fun. Sometimes business should be like Brendan Bouchard says, bring the joy, you know? And I had so mm -hmm. much fun last November engaging with people who kept saying, I love your mustache. Great video, by the way. But I loved your mustache. Yeah. And why, why do you have this? A lot of people don't know what November is. And because quite a few of my friends have lost their fathers from prostate cancer, I'm that almost, what that, that's what it is. So I'm kind of doing it to honor them. But also the charity is taking on a bigger meaning because it, it's also it's prostate cancer and it's mental health. And up until about a year ago, nobody really knew what mental health problems were in men. Or if we discussed them, it was discussed very quietly. You know, nobody really talked about it openly. But in the last year, mental health has become such a big deal, thankfully, that people are slowly starting to discuss it and talk about it. So for me, as somebody who went through a very painful divorce, who went through so much loneliness and isolation and pain and heartache, and then spent four months in lockdown living by himself, where I'd often go for days without seeing a human being. You can see them online on Zoom. But it's not the same as hugging somebody or, or, or seeing a friend. That affected me really badly. That really affected me in ways I never thought. It, it really struggled. Every time I got kicked down in my life, Victor, I always find the strength to come back. But loneliness, isolation, divorce really hit me so hard. That's why I moved back to Ireland. So all my stuff's in storage. I took my laptop, my clothes, even my drum kit. Everything's in storage. I took... I brought back about a dozen uh, sales and business books and that's it. And, and two suitcases in my car and everything's in storage. And I came back to live with my parents because I had to address myself. I had to sort my mental health out because how can I help my client side if I can't help myself? So I spent several months working myself and everything from coaching to reading Mark Hunter's book, A Mind for Sales, to speaking to people better than me, to joining mastermind groups, to really working on me. And come December, boom, I'm back, baby. My confidence is high. I am just fired up. I cannot wait for lockdown to end so I can get back to England. I'm missing my daughter, who's at university. I haven't seen her for almost five months now, you know? So I'm just raring to go. But obviously, with COVID-19, I'm being very respectful of the environment and the conditions. And nothing's going to happen, sadly, until probably April or May 2020. Yeah, I think we're all guessing at this point. One of the things I like about what you said, though, is that I think it's really interesting going back to the charity piece because, you know, you, you, in a sense, you've elevated the, the, the profession of selling. 
because most people think that selling is just about a commission check making money. And I've always said that, you know, it's about making money because we all, you know, quid pro quo, right? Value for value. We want to make money, but we also want to help companies or individuals grow. And I think you've added the third leg to this beautiful stool or table, and that is the charity piece, which is also giving back to those charities that you really buy into. In your case, it means something to you. And, you know, you know, if you're a salesperson listening to this, man, that might be something to kind of add into the mix because, you know, you tell me, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the ability to give back charity because you decided, not because somebody else told you to do it, because that's what you want to do, has to be fulfilling. Oh, 100%. A lot of people say, I'm not going to give to charity until I'm rich. And I say to them, well, I'm sorry, you're never going to be rich then. <laughs> you know, I, I give to charity when I didn't have money. When I was rebuilding my life after losing my job in a recession, I was not in a position to give anything, but I still gave 5% and then 6%. And when I was getting my commissions coming in, then it went to 10%. And now I still do that, but obviously my 10% is less. <laughs> because when you work in a big corporate company, your salary is just higher. I'm only three years into running my business. So I'm getting better and better and better, but my salary isn't what it used to be. But it doesn't bother me. But the fact I can help charities with LinkedIn training, with sales training, with their newsletters, all for free is very fulfilling. But they're charities that mean something to me. You know, the cancer charities is because I've lost friends from breast cancer. I know what it's like. You know, I have friends who've lost children from cancer, which is horrifying. So uh, last week I announced publicly that I'm supporting this charity for 12 months, the Henry Allen Trust, because you have to do stuff. When It's almost like Simon Sinek's why. When your why is big enough, you're amazed at how much you can achieve in life. And my why is big. It's about making a positive impact in the world. Like what Steve Jobs said, a positive dent in the universe, but it's making a positive impact in the world. And when you come from that place of service, it's amazing how much you can achieve, but also how much you can be fulfilled by the process as well. I think that that's the line I like. It's the fulfillment piece, because I think that is, you know, again, money is important. We want to help our customers. But if you can do some good, the positive dent in the world, so to speak, and it fulfills you, I think that's the trifecta of selling math. So thank you for elevating the game of selling. Niraj, <laughs> let people know where they can find out more about you, my friend. I always say to people, go to everybodyworksinsales.com or email Neeraj at everybodyworksinsales.com. No matter how many times I say that, everybody connects with me on LinkedIn. So I'm going to try reverse psychology. Connect with me on LinkedIn, please. Do not go to my website. <laughs> All right, we got it. All right, on that note, this is Victor Antonio signing off real quick. By the way, thank you for tuning into the Sales Influence Podcast. Give me some feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Pandora, Spotify, wherever you find this podcast. Also, when you get a moment, check out Naraj's LinkedIn profile and his website. And after you do that, go to the salesblossomacademy.com. Check out the new courses we got. We got some new fast classes that I think you'll enjoy. And on that note, this is Victor Antonio always reminding you that selling ain't hard when you know how. And you donate to charity once in a while. Take care.